we headed to Costco, and we came back, and we saw this guy on the side of the road hitchhiking. Now, we ourselves were privy to the hitchhiking scene in Hawaii, as we had done it several times before we made this connection with this person with a car. And so, uh, with five guys already in a car that really seats four people, uh, we looked at one another, my friend Brad Boya, and I'm in the passenger seat, and it was that, like, if you've seen Dumb and Dumber, that moment where you go, pick him up! Why not? Um, I'm also very comfortable at times, you know, with who I am, so I just jump into the back seat and lay across three dudes' laps, like this, in the back of this car, and we pick up Martin. That's his name. He's just this, like, tall, gnarly-looking dude in Maui. Now, um, whether you are in line and thinking with me on this or not, There are places in the world that tend to be spiritual hotspots. You know what I'm saying? Like that attracts people of all kinds of religious faiths and beliefs or spirituality in which they want to go. Oh, that's bad news. Now I'll be super awkward because I hate these. (laughs) I can't walk the nervous jitters. So Maui, in my estimation, is one of these places that is just a a place of spiritual spirituality, a spiritual hotbed that draws many people to it. This is probably going to be far better for me. And so we pick up Martin and we say, where are you going? Now, who's familiar with South Kihei, Maui? Anybody? A few people? Um, there's what we call Break Your Neck Beach, which is Big Beach. Every day, because of the way that this wave comes in and sucks dry, there is some tourist who thinks that they can still body surf in their 40s and 50s because they did it in their 20s. And sure enough, the ambulance is going by our apartments in South Kihei to go pick them up and take them to a hospital. The Big Beach is separated by a huge rock formation, and next to it is a little place called Little Beach. Anybody know about Little Beach? Shame on you. (laughs) Little Beach, Little Beach is clothing optional. All right? I mean, all there is is a rock separating you, but everybody sees you climbing it, so they know your shame when you head over to Little Beach. Martin, where are you going? I'm going to Little Beach. So are we. No, no, I'm kidding. Really? Well, why don't we get you at least to, um, like, Wailea? You know Wailea? It's like the super ritzy place. And we'll get you there and you can get on your own. But what are you going to do at Little Beach? And he pulls out of his bag this, like, cloth and unfolds it. And in it, he goes, these are my gods. I was like... I mean, I wasn't homeschooled, but I grew up in the Christian culture of Southern Oregon, which was like pretty much what my kids are growing up in being homeschooled right now. (laughs) Shock and awe in my face. And he talks about his gods. And I said, well, what are you doing with them? And he said, we're going to Little Beach. And if you guys want to join us, we're going to dance around a fire. We're going to take off our clothes and we're going to hang out with each other. All right. I think there's some kids in here. So that's what they were going to do. And I just sort of looked at this guy, and and it wasn't our last run-in with Martin, by the way, and I just couldn't believe what I was hearing. I always had this idea 
that people are spiritual and this kind of spirituality exists in the world, that these kinds of functions actually happened and took place. But here is a man in the front seat of our car who is going to go and worship his gods. And he's inviting, proselytizing, trying to bring us along with him. And I share that this morning because it's, one, a fantastic and great story because there's so much more behind it as well. But if you didn't know this, humans, humans in general, are very religious. In 2022, 84% of humans on the face of the planet identify with a religious group. Humans are religious. Now, what is religion? I got a great slide from dictionary.com up there. A set of beliefs concerning the cause, nature, and purpose of the universe. So there are a set of beliefs if you're religious, and you're going to basically order your life because it's talking about nature, purpose, the universe, especially when considering as the creation of superhuman agency or agencies, usually involving devotional and ritual observances, and often containing a moral code, or lack thereof, governing the conduct of human affairs. Great definition from dictionary.com, but let's look at what Leslie Newbigin says. He was a missiologist. He was a person who went on many missions, and he was also uh, able to really look at culture and discuss and talk about what was going on from a missionary mindset and write books and articles in such a way that were compelling and drawing a people to what it looks like to be the people of God in their culture. Out there, he says this. Religion is not one more cultural expression alongside others, but a directing power at the root of culture that integrates and shapes all other areas. It is a hidden credo, a whole worldview, a way of understanding the whole of human experience, a set of beliefs, experiences, and practices that seek to grasp and express the ultimate nature of things, that which gives shape and meaning to human life, that which claims final loyalty. Essentially, humans all have this set of belief that give them purpose, that explain why we're here and why we live the way that we live and why we come here every Sunday and we sing songs and we break bread, we pray for one another. We order our lives around religion. Even if you happen to believe there is no God, this atheistic bent, you still tend to have some sort of humanistic ideology of how you view the world and think we should be progressing and leaving this place better for our kids. It's your belief system. Let's just boil religion down to your belief system on how you order your life. Now, this is important because we're about ready to read a really interesting text. In Acts 14, Paul and Barnabas had just been in Iconium, all right, Iconium, and they were sharing the gospel, and they get chased out of town, and they get threatened with huge rocks of being stoned. And they come to this next place, and it says in verse 8 of Acts 14, now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looking intently at him, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw that Paul had done, they lifted up their voice saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us 
Did you read that? The gods have come down to us. This ancient culture lived in a world of spirituality in which they had a category for exactly what Jesus had done. Jesus coming down in the infant birth, miraculously, living amongst others, both God and man. This would not be some foreign leap or hard concept to envision that a deity could walk the earth amongst humans. They have this view that the gods are amongst them. And they're going to order and shape their life after it. How so? The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garland to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. They wanted to have a barbecue. Hey, the gods are here. Break out the fine wine Get the nice silverware and let's roast up an ox or a lamb and let's praise them. Well, we're going to find out why in a moment. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard it, they tore their garments and rushed into the crowd crying out, men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news, that is gospel, that you should turn from these vain Um, When we look at that word vain here, think unfulfilling things. We also know that word to be empty things to a living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with good food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. Good job, guys, but keep reading. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city, he made many disciples. They returned to Lystra and to Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord whom they had believed. This is an absolutely fascinating story, and let me tell you why. These citizens of that town ordered their entire lives around the gods, the ones in whom they worshiped and believed that these were the ones that they should give praise and adoration to. These were the ones that we should sacrifice to. These are the ones we should fear. How do we know that? Well, in their thought process, in their storytelling, there was a story that previously had happened in this Galatia kind of region in which two strangers, according to legend, had come to their town, and they were knocking on doors, asking if anybody would take them in. In that day and age, hospitality was a huge mark of what it meant to be in a community and to embracing strangers and pilgrims and outsiders. And door after door after door was shut in the face of these two strangers until they came to this small, lowly, humble-looking house. And there they knocked on that door, 
And the door opened, and there was two people, this couple living there, named Philemon and Bacchus. And there they looked at these strangers, and they invited these strangers into their home. And they begin to prepare a meal for them. And they begin to fill their cups with wine. And in terms with being hospitable and the need for it in that day and age, they thought their food was going to run out. But they saw that it just kept coming and coming and coming. And the glasses were filled with wine over and over again. And the couple went, there's something different about these people. And it was at that moment that they revealed themselves to be Zeus and Hermes these gods. And so that couple went and they tried to catch the only goose that they had. This is, you can go watch this. It's fascinating on YouTube when the retelling of the story. And they want to sacrifice or give this goose to this couple. Well, as the story unfolds, this couple, because of their hospitality, is rewarded with longevity and being servants in the temple of Zeus. While then Zeus and Hermes brought a flood and wiped out the rest of the village. This was their faith system. This is why they responded the way in which they responded. When they saw that Paul was speaking this good news, when they saw this healing, they went, we've got to do something. We must react different than how the people in the past reacted. They had built their life on this false narrative of what we'll call idolatry based upon the stories that were passed down to them. So what does Paul do? What does Barnabas do? They speak against the very gods that this culture has succumbed to, had believed in. They confront the idolatry in that culture. They didn't come to introduce more idolatry. They didn't come to say, worship us, give to us, support us. But they came to destroy the very beliefs that they had bought into. And they say, men, we're just like you. And they're wondering, well, where does all your power come? They don't even really acknowledge that. They say, turn, turn from the unfulfilling, empty idols that you're chasing. And listen, there is a true and living God that we want you to serve. Now, this message is true for us today. Why are these idols vain? Why are they empty? Idolatry is really one of the first issues we see in Genesis. There, this idea that you can become like God, though they were already created in the image of God, Adam and Eve, that there was something more they could reach for that would be more fulfilling, more satisfying. This is idolatry. This idea of being promised something that actually won't fulfill you but leads you further away from who God is. They're being called to turn from these idols. Now, these idols aren't nothing. As we read this morning in Psalm 82, you are the God above the gods, literally in the Hebrew. You are the Elohim above all Elohim, created spiritual Elohim, created spiritual beings whom nations were worshiping, serving, whom they thought they would sacrifice to and they would then be given the rains for the due seasons for their crops to grow. There was power behind what they were serving in their belief systems and they're being told to turn from these. Why? Idolatry is the human desire to be fulfilled by something that was never intended to fulfill you. 
We sing a song, you know, I search the world. I tried to fill my heart with everything, but it was never enough. Never enough. Idolatry is how we get around God to get what we want. Lord, I know you said this isn't good or right or this isn't the way to go about it, but I sure know if I just kind of twist the truth right here and I circumvent you, I can get life on my terms. Idolatry is taking anything and making it the ultimate thing. And what Paul does here is he calls out the idolatry in their day, which looks a lot like idolatry in our day, but I also want to call out some of the idolatry, not just in our day, but in the church. So this won't be pleasant today. <laughs> if you brought a friend, I'm sorry. But this is what we're doing today. This idolatry that tries to define us and tell us who we are, Paul is going to cut to the very core of the issue. And he's saying, you guys are in danger and I'll tell you this, church, the church is in danger right now in how it dabbles in idolatry. How, how so? All right, there's this fun word. It's called syncretism. Familiar with it? No? Great. Throw it up there on the board. <laughs> there's some fun words in here, too. Syncretism is the amalgamation or attempted, I have to say it again, amalgamation of different religions, cultures, or schools of thought, the combination of different forms of belief or practice. Britannica, it explains it like this. You know those old books that you did your history reports on that were like, eh. It says, the fusion of cultures that was affected by the conquests of Alexander the Great, his successors and the Roman empires tended to bring together a variety of religious and philosophical views that resulted in a strong tendency towards religious syncretism. Okay, let me just break it into layman terms. Since we're in Redmond, I'm gonna use a country song. Y'all good with that? Yes. All right, um, I don't know who sings it, and you can shout it out if you want, but what's your name, what's your sign, what's your birthday? What's your wrist tattoo Bible verse say? What's that? Oh, it's my wife, of course. <laughs> Anything wrong with that lyric? What's your name? What's your sign? What's that? What's your sign? It's your astrology sign, right? So I'm a Gemini. Is that the only one I can think of? A Libra. I'm a whatever. What's your birthday? What's your tattoo Bible verse say? See, this is syncretism. How so? This is linking together. This is uniting biblical concepts and truths with another form of faith in this world that exists today. That form of faith is the astrological signs in which we are gonna allow for us as we open the newspaper and read, I wonder what this day, what this year holds for me. I'm gonna read about my sign. In addition to that, I'm going to let my sign define who I am. Like Libras and Geminis, do they connect or not? I don't know, but I better figure that out. I better allow for that to tell me who I am. You see, this is syncretism, the mixing and melding together of faith systems 
bringing them together as one in order to almost create this new quasi-system of faith that embraces and accepts every single person into it. In Rome, this was happening all over the place. We also can call it, are you ready for this? Religious pluralism. There's another definition for you. Generally refers to the belief in two or more religious worldviews as being equally valid or acceptable. More than mere tolerance, religious pluralism accepts multiple paths to God or gods as a possibility and is usually contrasted with exclusivism, the idea that there's only one true religion or one way to know God. This is what Rome was built upon. They would conquer they would take over a group of people, and then they would unite them by saying, you know what, hold on to your gods. In fact, our god Jupiter is a lot like your god Zeus. They're just one and the same with different names. Why don't we just bring them under all one umbrella so we can all get along in culture? You all know the, Bible, uh, the bumper sticker, coexist, right? Let's just bring them all under one banner. Let me ask you, how is that going? It's not great, is it? Because if you have religion as a way in which we order our entire lives, and the Christian religion is in contrast to spiritualism, following after the ways of the Buddha or Muhammad or the Hindu gods, and your whole life is ordered after that, you're not going to see eye to eye. So that's a problem. And this idea of syncretism, listen, it has crept in to the church here in the West. Let me quote from Leslie Newbigin again. He says, the church in the West is living in a state of syncretism. Oh, by the way, he was writing this in like the 60s and 70s. With this culture, instead of challenging its idolatry, it has been content to live in a cozy domestication with the modern worldview. Do you hear that? The church is living in this cozy, domesticated, modern worldview. Just okay with everything that's going on. This is what Paul was writing against in 1 Corinthians. You can't go eat meat at the places in which they're sacrificed to idols. You can't co-mingle these beliefs together. You need to remove yourself from them. We can't just add Jesus to our already comfortable lives. We do this, and we're not making Jesus the center, but he's just another God that we add in to the American dream, the American way, and to make life feel a little better. So, so what are the idols in our church culture? There's, there's three things I want to talk about, and I hope to blast through them, or I preach again, not next week, but the week after, and we'll come back around. Idols, these things in which we get our identity from, order our life around, the things in which we put in place to experience or to obtain the good life. Uh, number one in the church, and you can probably name many more, experience. The church has an idolatry problem with experience. So what do I mean by that? Instead of looking to the word of God to be our norm and our guide, people tend to look to their own experiences, feelings, intuitions, and impressions to be their guide. This is a problem in the church today. Experience becomes the God that we seek after. Experience becomes the God that we go, well, I, I felt this at this place, so we have to do it here in this way as well for it to be right. This is part of the American individualization, our individualism that has overtaken us. Emotion and expression are good, 
But when you make it more important than the word of God or put it higher than God's word, it becomes idolatry in our lives. This also plays out when we see other churches doing things a certain way and we go, you know what? If Redeemers really wants to thrive, now listen, there's nothing wrong with learning at the feet of other people who are doing things well. We do this in the business world. That's great. You do this as an educator. That's excellent. We watch TED Talks and get all kinds of experience. Thank goodness Josh was a co-pilot before he was a pilot. Right, Josh? You learn. (laughs) I just got the death stare. You learn. From somebody else, that's good. But when you say we have to mimic and model that to then get the same results that they're getting, the church is moving, our church, local church, is moving away from what God wants to do here in his expression in Redmond and trying to mimic something that's going on somewhere else. AKA what Carson talked about last week, that Asbury Revival. And other people going, how do we get some of that at our place? How can, maybe we just do 24-7 worship. Maybe God was doing something unique in that situation, and we're not meant to pick that up and carry it on. But that's the way to be a really great church. Really? Are you sure about that? This is the problem that Christians do, and they go from teacher to pastor to preacher to church experience, rather than settling into a community where it's going to be rough at times, where we're going to have arguments, where another one of the teachers can get up on stage and say, I was critical of somebody in this church. And here's why. And then you work through your issues and you come together in joy and tears and you grow as a people. But the church idolizes this form of success. So we have to latch on to other organizations that are doing it a certain way in order to adopt it into our mentality so we can look like them. That's idolatry. Who's your favorite pastor? Listen, probably not me, (laughs) because I failed you guys. I have. You know what? I really like listening, and I could fill in the blank to who I like listening to. I get that. But that pastor is not going to be on your doorstep. That pastor is not going to be here saying hello to you. And when we idolize them, it creates problems in our own hearts and thinking. Number two, the church idolizes politics. No? (laughs) Yes, the church idolizes politics. Right now, we think our country is going to be saved by politics. Right now, every single person has an opinion on who they think should be the next president of the United States. Right now, everybody in this room, I'm going to guess, has had a disagreement in the last four years with somebody about politics. And here's what I want to tell you. You cannot disengage from the political arena. You can't. You can't just say, I'm all political. I tried to do that during COVID. It didn't work. <laughs> Nobody liked me. <laughs> you, can't, you can't do that. And I understand that. But some of you are more known for your liberalism or conservatism and not your Jesusism. Many of us have lost friendships because we've taken such hard stances and have become hard in our hearts And our political identity is the identity that we're living out. 
We're not showing love and grace and mercy as Jesus calls us to do. We're not standing up for things that we know we ought to be standing up for. People we ought to be standing up for. And we're so engaged with who's going to be the next, and I kind of say this lightly, the next puppet who's going to be running our nation. And you can certainly vote a certain way, but I'll tell you what, I am sick and tired of the church being marked by a political identity. I am never here to convert you to conservatism or liberalism. I'm here to tell you about Jesus. And I want Jesus to sort that out. I also know that you can't disengage, but I will say this, and my wife knows this, I am very much in the middle And I can look at it and go, there's things the right is doing so poorly in the way it talks about, treats, discusses other people who are different than the way they think, act, and live their lives. And they want to legislate morality. That's garbage. I have harsher language, but that's garbage. And on the left, listen, education, technology, Knowledge is not a way to grasp for eternity. It's not going to create a utopian society in which we all get along. Just live and let people be. It's not going to work because there is sin in this world that we're calling people to. And both the left and the right are heavily engaged in it. And the church is a bunch of bullies right now. And we're not doing people any favors. Quite frankly... I'm just sick of it. When I look at the scriptures, Paul doesn't look at them and go, here's all the little things you need to turn from and get right. He says, look, you were serving these gods. They're idols. And you need to become a people of God, Jesus followers. Church, we could probably talk for this for a lot longer. And I've got lots of thoughts and opinions. Be known for your Jesusism, not your liberalism, not your conservatism. Both sides have faults. Both sides are failing. Number three, the church is in idolatry in terms of modernity, modernism, buying into these concepts. The idea that we'll be saved and reach the good life through all of our advances. And that's just not true. It's not true at all. And here's what the church needs to understand. As Jeremy shared two weeks ago, Christians have not had their voice taken away. They've given it away. Here, Paul comes into the public arena, and he begins to share the gospel, the good news of Christ. Martin Luther said, the gospel's like a caged lion. All you got to do is let it out. I don't have to convince you into it. I don't have to win arguments. I need you to know and to see Jesus. And that's what we're called to do. If you want to combat idolatry, in the church, then we need to become a people who are more concerned with Jesus and his mission than everything else going on around us. You guys get that? Yes? Listen, I've got three symptoms of idolatry. I don't even have three minutes left. (laughs) Okay, so we're going to save this for two weeks from now. But I want us to actually consider what are the idols that we hold on to? What are we chasing? And I'm just going to give you a little foresight into that. What makes you grumble and complain? What you grumble and what you complain about tells you what you idolize, what you love, what you have to have, what you need. What you're so upset about, like me this morning, just thinking snow, (laughs) so mad it's March. 
well, I'm just really mad because I'm tired of being cold and my comfort's the most important thing to me. Okay? I'm just saying, amen, yes. <laughs> At the heart of what we're complaining about is actually what we idolize. And we're gonna unpack that in a couple weeks from now. I'll find a way to do it in the next set of scripture. Very important for us today. But church, if we're gonna become a culture that is awesome, that is welcoming, that is kind, that is loving, that is embracing of others, even if they look, talk, act different than us. If we're gonna welcome them into this family of God, we must be more concerned with who they are as people and see them as people. Invite them in, lovingly share and declare, God loves you, and here are the idols that we turn from. Must become that kind of people in this place. Let's pray. God, thank you today. Um, May this church just repent of the way we've treated others different than us. I sincerely believe that church and mean that, in which we've ruined friendships because it's been more important that we're right with our theology, we're right with our politics, we're right with our thought processes, rather than seeing people. Lord, may it begin with me, may it trickle down, and may we see a movement of God happen because we genuinely want to see your mission, your kingdom come, your will be done. May we embrace a diverse kind of people, calling them to follow Jesus, and then letting Jesus and the Holy Spirit through the word of God sort out all the junk that plagues us, burdens us, is sinful, is wrong. But may we show Jesus above all and worship you. Be our hope, be our king, be our everything. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, would you stand with me? Sorry, guys, kind of a a rough landing on that because I had a nice bow to tie around it all. Um, I really did. And yet, this is where we land today. And we're going to sing some songs, but I think there can be as much repenting as singing this morning because if we've got idols in our heart, it's just vain worship, and God's not impressed with your singing voice if it means nothing. If you've got things that you've placed above him, in front of him, before him, if you're demanding, if you're requiring, if you're grumbling, if you're complaining, this is the opportunity to lay that at the feet of Jesus. It's such a cliche Christian thing to say, but it's so true, church. To lay it down and say, God, you are ultimate. And that's why I sing. I'll tell you what, my heart got rocked this week in preparation for the stuff I didn't even get to get into because I am the chief grumbler in my family. I am the chief complainer. I truly believe that when I'm with people around me. And I'm not just saying that to say that. I'm being sincere and true with you, church, and it hurt me this week. My wife and I had a long conversation. You know what I mean? A long conversation. And she said something, and it, I mean, I almost didn't sleep that night. And it hurt. I'm going to share it with you because I can do that and I can be humble and honest. And she just said, Brett, you do a lot of things that will benefit you. But that's why you do them. Ah, crap. Sorry. That's what I said. (laughs) 
And she came back the next day and said, I didn't mean it like that. And I know, I know you didn't, but I believe it. I believe it. And it hurt because I know that in the way I grumble and complain when things don't go my way, I'm at the center of it. And I also know that's a leading cause as to why I do the things that I do. Church, that's an idolatry problem in your pastor in the church. And I'm being sincere with you. And it's been freeing this week. She'll probably tell you I've been happier this week than I have been in a while. Smiling, joking, laughing, because I'm coming to Jesus on that. This Jesus stuff is not a waste of time. Your idol chasing is. Your self-fulfillment is. Place your hope in him. We're going to do that this morning by singing, taking communion. We're going to sing one song. The tables are open. There's an offering box to give to what God is doing here. Take communion, and then we'll close out with a song and prayer. But I don't want you to miss this. And don't miss being vulnerable with God, with your neighbors, with the people around you. Let's worship him.